Good morning. This is the San Diego First Church of the Nazarene podcast. My name is Dee Kelly. I am one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Delightful that you've tuned in to be part of the study in 1 Corinthians. We've been in 1 Corinthians for several weeks and continue into it today, um, looking at chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So I'm glad that you've joined us. We do have services on Sunday morning at 1030. Would love to have you here in the Point Loma area of San Diego, California, 3901 Loma Land Drive. We also have midweek programming, and you're more than welcome to check us out on the website. It's sdfcnaz.com. Let me read for us, if I could, the scriptures uh, from which this morning's message is taken. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we jump into this letter, and if you've not followed along, you're jumping into <clears throat> the end of a long progression of teachings that Paul has offered to the church at Corinth. This is actually considered the fifth essay, fifth, uh, chapter 15, or the fifth sermonette in a series of sermonettes that comprise this letter. <clears throat> this has some deep significance to it as indicated by the opening portion of this passage where it says, otherwise you have believed in vain. Believed in vain if this isn't true, if, this, if you don't hold firmly to this teaching this is the gospel by which you were saved, and you need to hold firmly to it. We'll come back to the notion of what it is like to believe in vain, but let's talk about what it is that they believe in. It begins in verse 3, carries through verse 5, and it is this. It is probably the most ancient of teachings that 
the early church wrapped themselves around as being essential to their faith. And it is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And then on the third day, Christ rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, and he appeared. These lines make up the essential core of that in which we place our faith if we are going to be a follower of Christ and follow in this tradition. I have on my shelf a number of books from my grandfather's library. My grandfather is the person after whom I am named, Selden D. Kelly III. He was Selden D. Kelly Sr. He died before my dad got married. I never knew him. I just know him through stories that have been told. And I am very intrigued to find out new information about him as those stories sometimes come in from people that knew him or read something about him or have a piece of literature about him. Somebody in this church actually gave me church bulletins that he had in his possession that uh, wrote up various things about my grandfather when he preached on the East Coast at Malden Church of the Nazarene in Malden, Massachusetts. Well, I have several of these books. One is a series of Adam Clark commentaries, and another is a series of Wesley's works. They come out of the mid to late 18th century is when they were published in this form. And my grandfather was not born until 1898, so even though they were in his possession, he came into possession of them, most likely after somebody else had long owned them. But it is wonderful for me to go through them and imagine some of what he read because in a few places there are notes written in the margins that I think are my grandfather's. What is it that caught his attention? What is it that interested him? How did he prepare in his life's journey? So this is part of what we're looking at here in this passage much like I can go back to a much earlier writing and not only see an original depiction of um, Adam Clark's work or the, one of the published works of Adam Clark and then see my grandfather's notes in the margin. We go back such a long ways when we capture this portion of 1 Corinthians, not just the letter, but within the letter, we have this writing that predates Paul writing the letter. So one of the powerful things about 1 Corinthians is that it, in all likelihood, was written 20 years before the first gospel was written. So this was a writing that was forming the church before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were offered up for us to receive written by an apostle who was not among the twelve, but learned much of what he learned from those who had been there with Jesus and lived and walked with him and observed the things that took place. Paul is not one who started a revolutionary movement. He joined the revolutionary movement. This movement of faithful Christ followers who had been 
captured by the truth of the resurrection. And Paul, very clearly for the church at Corinth, places it in a place of this is what we know. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We know this according to the scriptures. Scriptures talk about this. The scriptures that they had in the Old Testament writings, the Old Testament as we know it, for them it was their scriptures. How do we know he died? Because he was buried. And there are witnesses that saw he was buried. Then the next portion of it is that according to the scriptures, Jesus rose from the dead. That this was something that was foreshadowed in their ancient writings. But how do we know that he rose from the dead? And the answer is that he appeared to people. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the Twelve. He then appeared to 500 other people. We have depictions of those who wrote the Gospels that he first appeared to the women. That these appearances confirmed what was asserted in the ancient writings, and that was that there was a resurrection that took place. This is the earliest core of what it meant to be a believer. It's radical. In many ways, it's unbelievable. And Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, but what I want you to know is that there are so many people who were there who were eyewitnesses. Not just that this is a story we heard from one or two people, but there are over 500 people who saw Jesus after he had died and was buried. This then becomes that which changes everything. It is a powerful statement of what Jesus has done for us. The desire for the people, the people at the time of Jesus, was that their promised land would be restored. That they would have freedom and that Jerusalem would be completely returned to them in every way. But as foreshadowed by the prophets, Jesus did something far greater. Jesus brought them back into relationship with God the Creator. The incarnation, God with us in Jesus. And Jesus creates the way by which, in spite of our sins, we can be in relationship with God. The second thing that the people wanted desperately was to be out from under Roman oppression. That the power of Rome would be destroyed. But Jesus did something far greater foreshadowed again by the prophets of Scripture. He brought about an overthrow of the power of death. If Jesus has been resurrected, that means we need to no longer have fear of death. Fear of Rome 
Yep, that was a problem. But the fear of Rome was in essence the fear of death. And Jesus destroyed the fear of death because of the resurrection. It changes everything, not only of our hope for the future, but our interactions now. This is the promise that we have. Now, this passage goes on in verses 5, 6, and 7, the end of 5, 6, and 7. It says Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared to Cephas or Peter. Jesus appeared to the 12. Jesus appeared to 500. Now, in this kind of parallel step way that Paul often uses, he then repeats this order. And he says that, and Jesus appeared to James, and Jesus appeared to all the apostles. And then you're expecting a large number to match the 500 that he referenced a few moments before. But instead, and then he appeared to me, Paul, as one abnormally born. This language is a reference to a a birth that didn't go as planned. A, A birth that was right on the edge of a miscarriage or deformity, a difficult birth. And that's how Paul describes himself. It seems at times that Paul, even though he seems to have incredible self-confidence, also has moments of um, identity crisis, maybe, to describe himself in this way, and yet he comes back later and speaks about how hard he has worked for the gospel. But here is what we find in the midst of Paul's self-descriptions, not only in this portion, but at the end of the reading in verse 11, is Paul's statement that I am who I am by the grace of God. I love that here Paul says, this is my identity. I am who I am. You all know my history. I persecuted the church. I I did things I should have never done. That's me. But God's grace has transformed me. So I am who I am. God's grace has made me who I am. It is this powerful statement that my identity is found in my maker and in my maker's grace toward me. How many times we place our identity in so many other things? My identity is in what I own. My identity is in the home that I have. My identity is in my family. My identity is in my work. That certainly was a problem for me. Some of you know that... uh, In a portion of my journey of a previous uh, chapter, I was fired from a job, and one of the key things that came out of that was a recognition of how much my identity was wrapped up in what I did, my vocation. I love what I do here. It is one of the joys of my life to be able to work with colleagues that I have and to serve the people that are here and to be on the journey with you. But as soon as my identity becomes wrapped up in what I do, then it's misplaced. I become subject to every opinion. I 
move into uh, seasons where I just kind of am down if I am tied into statements that are made or problems that occur. But if my identity is in Christ, I am who I am by God's grace. And there I find my purpose, my worth, my identity. I am an image created in the image of my creator. That's who I am. I love my family. I love my church family. I love my work. I love the things that I get to do and play. I love the journey that I've been on. But my identity, my identity is a child of God, created by God, to live in ways that honor him and make me the best that I can be. That's my identity. Well, we then come back to ask the question, where do we find our identity as a church? Because this gospel message is not about individualism. It's about the faith community. We are part of the Nazarene denominational tradition. And I love that about us. But our identity is that we are Christ's church, Christ's body. I love where we are in Southern California. But those characteristics, though they are part of who we are, are not what drives our identity. The fact that we are in the United States, and because of that, we have certain freedoms, freedoms to worship and freedoms to um, engage in worship without the kind of interference that other places have. But I want to make it clear that those freedoms don't define who we are. If all of those freedoms were taken away, and I don't want them to be taken away, but if all of them were taken away, my identity doesn't change. Our identity doesn't change. We are still Christ's body. We are still united under the banner of our statement of faith that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose from the dead, and that he was seen. He appeared. The resurrection is what we believe in, and it gives us power over death, gives us power over circumstances. It gives us a faith that sees us through whatever is and declares in the midst of whatever it is, I know who I am and I know who we are. We are the body of Christ. And so I come back full circle to the statement that Paul raises or the question that he raises for the people. Be careful lest your believing be in vain. And what does it mean to be in vain? Meaning that it makes no difference. We've come through numerous chapters of Corinthians where Paul was pointing out, be careful how then you live. Be careful how you treat one another. Be careful how your life reflects what it is that is at the heart of our faith. If we are not treating each other with love, 
then our believing has been in vain. It hasn't resulted in any change. This, to me, is a restatement of the commandment that says, um, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's not a question about swearing. It's a question of what change happens in you as a result of carrying the moniker of being a follower of Christ. That's true for us individually and corporately. It is a call to not have our life be a life that's been lived in vain because nothing changed about who we are. So first, I would ask the question, what would it be like if we truly found our identity in Christ? That nothing else can shoot arrows or create problems for how we view ourselves because all of those other things become less important when our identity in Christ becomes ultimately important. And Christ's statement to us is that he loves us. The act of death and resurrection is an act of supreme love. No one of us could be loved more than we are loved by our Creator who knows us best and loves us most. So this is what we believe, that God loves us. And there we find our identity in God's love and grace. And then secondly, we are determined to let that change us so that our belief is not in vain, but it actually moves to change the world. And then Paul says, I have passed on to you what I have received. But there is a language here that is sometimes missed. It's not like I have been handed a letter and I pass it on to the next person. Paul has received this truth. And it becomes part of who he is. And then he becomes part of the storyline. And he passes it on to the church at Corinth. It is as if he has received the gospel, been affected by the gospel, and then he lets the gospel become a verb, where it then begins to be lived out in his life. He is gospeling. He has been gospeled. It now becomes his actions in place that affect the church at Corinth, where he's laying part of himself down on their behalf. It's not a matter of just repeating words. It's living what I believe. And so it's not until the gospel becomes something in me that changes the way I live and I become gospeled. <laughs> and then I live out the gospel that I am truly passing on anything that is of value. It's not that I change the core, it's that I live out the core of what it means to be a faithful follower so that my believing is not in vain. So that's where we're left this week. What will it mean this week for you to actually live out the gospel in action? Who will you love? How will you love differently? How will you touch this world and make it a better place? And then how do we do it together? Sharing our resources, making the community of faith a place where the gospel is not just heard, 
it's experienced. That's the challenge for us this week. I hope you have a blessed week, one filled with God's love toward you, one where you come into contact with others and not only have the chance to receive from some, but to give to others. So let me offer a prayer on that behalf. Lord God, thank you for this day. The time that you have provided for us to learn and to grow, to be changed by the good news of love. Having been changed, Lord, to live out the good news so that others might experience it through us. May our words not get in the way, but instead may we leave a legacy that gets passed down and passed down and passed down so that it becomes difficult to even see the original piece because love has grown exponentially and love has been communicated by so many. So Lord, give us a faith that is not in vain, but is built on the precept that you loved us so much, that you died on our behalf, and then the powers that hold us down so much have been overthrown because you rose from the dead. May no circumstance destroy us. May no discouragement be permanent. May no experience thwart our belief that you love us supremely and are working for our best interests as we give ourselves to you. May this work never be in vain, Lord, but may it glorify you in every way. Amen. Go in God's grace, God's peace, and God's love. Have a wonderful week.